Good evening. I'm Carla Hayden, the CEO of the Annie Pratt Free Library, and welcome to the first of the Writers Live series uh, for this year. It's a wonderful way to start the year with a very, very, very special program. And so I just want to welcome you and hope you join us um, in a couple of weeks. Jeffrey Tubin is going to be here, and we have some other, uh, Chris Hayes, and some other great speakers coming as well. But tonight, we are really a Baltimore uh, homegrown and also uh, subject matter. And so to introduce um, our speakers and to get the program off tonight, we're very pleased to welcome our partner, the uh, director of the Hopkins University Press. And as some people in the older generation say, um, we're in high cotton tonight because we're with Hopkins. So please welcome Ms. Keene. Well, thank you very much. I didn't know I was in high cotton. That's, that's pretty cool. Uh, thank you, Carla. Uh, and again, I'm Kathleen Keene, director of the Johns Hopkins University Press. It's a great pleasure to add my welcome for tonight's program about the press's newly published book, Tapping into the Wire, The Real Urban Crisis, by Peter Bielinson and Patrick McGuire. Let me uh, also thank Judy Cooper and all of our friends here at the Pratt Library for hosting another program with us. We enjoy working with you, and we really appreciate the support that you give to the press and our authors. Thank you for joining us this evening. You may be here because you're a friend of the Pratt Library or a friend of the JHU Press, or you may be a fan of the acclaimed television drama, The Wire. You may be here as a friend or admirer of one or both of the authors. Their careers offer much to admire. If you know The Wire, either as a viewer or by its considerable reputation as one of America's great television achievements, you know of its honest, if disturbing, portrayal of the enormous problems facing some of the citizens of Baltimore and cities like ours. But you would also know that David Simon and his collaborators found nuance and meaning in the tragic dramas that occur daily. The Wire's stories troubled us, but they also highlighted our shared humanity. Among the viewers who were inspired by what he saw in The Wire was Peter Bielinson who chose episodes of the series as the text for a class he taught for several years at Johns Hopkins examining a range of urban policy and public health issues. The class has been enormously popular and by all accounts quite inspiring to the new generation of students who are trying to learn how to tackle some of the difficult issues the series portrays. The book is drawn from the material used by that class. I believe it can inspire an audience well beyond the classroom, including all of us, to consider and confront important realities in urban life. Dr. Peter L. Bielinson is now Howard County, Maryland's health officer. From 1992 to 2005, he served as Baltimore City's health commissioner. He received his undergraduate degree from Harvard University, an MD from Emory University School of Medicine, and a master's in public health from Johns Hopkins University Bloomberg School of Public Health. Patrick A. McGuire is a journalist with more than 25 years of experience writing for publications including the Baltimore Sun, the Denver Post, and Business Week. He received his journalism degree from St. Bonaventure University and was an NEH journalist in residence at the University of Michigan. 
I'm proud that the Johns Hopkins University Press has published their book and also many other books and journals about our city and a wide range of serious issues in public health and urban policy. I also salute the wonderful Pratt Library for the light and hope that it brings to the people of our city every day through its services. And I'm very pleased to ask you to join me in welcoming and congratulating JHU Press authors Peter Bielenson and Patrick McGuire. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Uh, I'm sure Peter does too. Do you appreciate it? <laughs> we both do. It's, that's how we worked. Uh, uh, so I thought I would start off just to give you a brief idea of how this book got together, how we got going on our project. Then I'm going to turn it over to Peter and he'll talk about the real stuff that's in the book. Uh, one thing we, we shared in common when we first met two years ago Neither one of us had seen The Wire when it was first aired on, I guess it wasn't aired on the cable, first cabled on HBO, because neither one of us had HBO. Uh, I, I'm just curious, how many people here have seen The Wire, either some or all of it? Wow. How many of you saw it after the show went off the air, through this, the dip? Wow. That's impressive. Uh, one thing we were wondering about when we talked about this book, would people still remember The Wire? Uh, at the time, it was selling very well in uh, Amazon, the DVD collection. Uh, but Peter and I got together about two years ago, and he was just beginning to uh, outline a class for Hopkins on uh, uh, The Wire as, as a, almost a textbook for a class on uh, public health issues in the, in the inner city and the real problems of the city as reflected through this television program. Uh, the idea when he when he watched the show, he said to me, as soon as as soon as the last one was done, he said, I want to teach a class about this, and then I want to write a book about this. So uh, I am a writer uh, by trade, and uh, we were introduced by a common friend, Jonathan Bohr. I don't know if Jonathan is here. Uh, and uh, what we talked about, Peter and I, when we first got together, was. What are these issues uh, uh, you know, that the cities are facing that you have dealt with? He was the former commissioner, uh, public health commissioner in Baltimore. And uh, he said he the idea was that all of the issues he confronted as commissioner were in the wire in one scene or another. And we decided to uh, break the book up into chapters each chapter dealing with one of those uh, social issues, and that each chapter would then take the scenes in the wire that best exemplified how that uh, issue was dealt with. Um, the idea, one of the ideas was that, you know, the wire is fiction, so it's made up. But uh, David Simon and I were reporters together, and uh, any reporter who has, has worked in, on a city newspaper understands the difference between reality and fiction. And what I liked best about The Wire was its very uh, uncompromising, uh, realistic look at life, uh, from the police department to uh, schools to politics, uh, even to newspapers itself. Uh, so we wanted to answer a, perhaps an unasked question, uh, how real was The Wire? I mean, it was entertaining, it was gripping, it, it looked real, but is it real? I mean, was that, or is that all made up? 
uh, were those characters all made up? Uh, it didn't take long before Peter and I were going through the material he had put together about uh, his career as a public health officer, that it was, issues would come, to, uh, scenes would come, out, come to life that he had seen in real life that were right there on the screen. And uh, so we thought that that could work, that we could use the wire as a textbook in a way, but really not aimed at academics. We wanted to aim it at people who, who had seen the program, who might have something to do with helping uh, come up with solutions to problems, and who would perhaps identify with the wire, and who would uh, find this a, a good jumping off point to uh, begin a conversation with others who they know. Uh, I, I think we both had the feeling that people who are convinced that all of this stuff is uh, you know, poppycock, they're never going to be, it's pretty going to be pretty hard to change their minds. But there's a lot of people out there in the middle who I think uh, probably aren't well versed on some of these issues. And uh, this could help them get a firmer grasp on some things so that they could begin talking about it. So our goal was to write a book that would people would read and feel like they learned something or wanted to know more and, and thought we were wrong and wanted to know more, but th that they would start talking about it. So. We didn't set out to save the world. Um, we set out to write a book and see what that would do. Uh, one of the things I thought I'd do before I introduce Peter is uh, read a little excerpt in the book from uh, my interview with David Simon. Um, David uh, left this, the Baltimore Sun just about the time. I left in 1994. I've been there about 14 years. And David left, I think, the year after, 1995. I think he'd been there 14 or 15 years. But we had a lot of similar experiences. And he was really uh, uh, happy to uh, sit down for this interview. But I thought, in terms of just the television program itself, it might be interesting for you to hear uh, what he had to deal with uh, with the HBO people in terms of getting this program on the air. Uh, so I, I asked him, the question was, the theme of The Wire seems to be the inability of our public institutions to function without corruption, self-interest, or political motivation behind every turn of the wheel. When you initially conceived the idea of the wire, had you already decided which institutions to go after? Uh, the show had five seasons, and each season went after uh, one of those uh, uh, public institutions. His answer, first, I needed to see if HBO liked it. They only asked for one season. It was entirely possible we would only have one season. I knew we only had room enough in that one season to start an argument about undoing the drug war. Once they asked us, do you want to come back? Do you have more? We said, absolutely. At that moment, we could open it up and go into different things. So then there was a discussion with writers, <clears throat> myself and Ed Burns and later George Pelicanos, who was extremely influential. Richard Price kicked in after season three. We threw it open to the idea of what would we need to do to paint the city. The second season, I was adamant about going to the port. Underlying all of that was reforming the underclass, which effectively is the drug war. That needed to be the second season. The third season needed to introduce the political infrastructure because we needed that in place to speak to reform. We also needed in place somewhere in the series the futility of any attempt to reform the school system or address the school system. You could see the inertia there. And then the last piece had to be the media because you basically wanted to say, as a coda to the piece, by the way, if you thought any of the problems that we've depicted are going to be addressed, the external watchdog has no teeth anymore. 
that line, <laughs> I'm sure anyone who's worked at the newspaper will have an opinion one way or the other on that. So these were the five seasons, if we got five. We still had to beg. They gave us two and three pretty easily. We were almost canceled after three. Four was a hard fight, a lot of begging. After four, there was talk about canceling the last season. It wasn't a hit. They had a limited production budget. They said, we'll give you money to try something else, to shoot a pilot. They were looking for another Sopranos. And they said, why don't you take another shot at having a hit? And I kept saying to them, I kept saying to them, I don't do hit. <laughs> David. And then it turned out that The Wire became The Wire. Somewhere around the end of the fourth season, the DVDs began to sell incredibly well. And they continue to sell to this day. Overseas, it's huge. Nobody had seen that. I certainly hadn't. I didn't know people would want to watch it that way. Anyway, they gave us a fifth season. <clears throat> and as a postscript to that, he said, David Mills came in later and said, why don't you do something about the Latinos coming into Upper Fells Point? Immigration. He was dead right. As soon as he said it, I realized it was one that we'd missed. By the time he said it, we were gearing up to do season four with the young kids, which also started the rise of Marlowe's crew. It was a two-year story arc, and we'd already planned the ending. Immigration is the one I wish we had done. Boy, that would have been great if you had. So just to give you a glimpse of, uh, of that end of it, I'm now going to introduce, turn it over to Peter, who will talk about um, the actual issues we discussed and how we found them in the wire and uh, the scary uh, parallel with the real truth in the real world. Peter Bielinson. Thank you. So Julie will, will probably know this story. Um, it's a true story. Name's been changed for uh, HIPAA-type reasons, um, confidentiality reasons. Um, with a, a young man named Corey came to my attention, our attention, at age 14 in November of 1992. And Corey was a 14-year-old who had 14 previous arrests for distribution charges and handgun charges. He was living with his maternal grandma, who was a substance abuser, in a row house that was empty and devoid of, of any real furniture, of, of, any, of any real material, had no heat or electricity except for a jerry-rigged cord to an, a row house next door um, to the little refrigerator that was sitting on the ground with a couple of pieces of food in it. Um, the temperature was in the 30s at that time. It was late November, and he was, it was basically freezing cold. Um, he had been truant from school for about 90% of the time to that date and was living with his little half-brother and, and grandma and was the head of the McKean, top of McKean Avenue Boys. I don't know if you remember that. Um, which goes, highlights a lot of things. First of all, this is a 14-year-old who is fairly accomplished to be able to be the head of a, a marijuana gang, but also points out kind of one of the intricacies of Baltimore's uh, drug trade, and that is unlike, unlike Los Angeles or New York or Chicago that have two or three major gangs, the Crips, the Bloods, and the MS-13s, Baltimore is a city of neighborhoods in all sorts of ways, including the drug trade. And there are two, three hundred drug crews, some at each of the four corners of a different area. So the top of McKean Avenue boys was a, an interesting um, little group, but there was also the bottom of McKean Avenue boys, and the McKean Avenue is only two blocks long. So Corey was this young fellow who had a, a lot of wherewithal, um, clearly wasn't going to school, was leading the drug trade, and wore a pager at the time. This was just before the wire was starting and, and people had burners or cell phones. He was on, on, his, on his pager. 
and he came to our attention as part of Operation Safe Kids. Um, Operation Safe Kids is a project that started in 1990, wait, not 1992, what am I saying? 2002, take that back, 2002, right before the wire began, or right the same year the wire began. Um, and in 2002, the year, befo the year before, we had had 32 juvenile homicides in Baltimore City, under age 17, 32, which actually was more, not just per capita, not just the rate of, of juvenile homicides was the highest in the country, but the number was the highest in the country. So the mayor at the time, Mayor O'Malley, um, had us do an analysis of what was going on with these kids um, to try and identify who were most likely to shoot or be shot. And so we quickly did an analysis with the help of Julie Drake from the state's attorney's office, the police department, homicide squad, et cetera, et cetera, and found kind of what you would expect. 28 of them were boys, four of them were girls, and I'm using boys and girls actually because these were under 17. These were not men and women yet. Um, for, uh, the four girls were basically kind of winged, if you will. They were accidental, sh accidental shootings. And the 28 boys were all victims of gunshots to the head or torso um, with stipple, stippling marks because it was so close up with large bore um, guns, large bore um, weapons, basically uh, assassinations. And the huge preponderance of them had long records of distribution charges and handgun violations. So we put together a project called Operation Safe Kids, which was based on something sort of similar done in Boston, although not quite exactly the same. And we, it was made up of two different com components. One was what we called KidStat. So those of you who've seen The Wire, you've seen ComStat, which is where the police grill, the commanders grill the, um, the district commanders uh, on, on their crime statistics. We did something similar called KidStat. We actually did seven of these stat processes in the health department, but in a much more pleasant way, as my colleague Don O'Neill knows, because she sat in on those meetings with me. And actually, it depended a little bit on my ad, on my um, on my how I was feeling that day. I never was as bad as the police guys, as Rawls or whatever it was in the in the wire, but sometimes I was nicer than others. Um, anyway, KidStat, we had a process that was sacred time. Every Tuesday at 10 o'clock to 11 o'clock in the morning, we had agency heads or people who could make decisions, not just low-level bureaucrats who would pass along the, the process and say, I got to get back to you, to be able to make decisions on getting services for these kids. So we had the the placement officer at the school system if we needed to move a kid. We had the housing department's emergency um, fund, emergency fund to be able to turn back on the electricity or to get them food. We had the district attorney, the state's attorney's office who were prosecuting these kids, and we had the public defenders who were defending these kids. So we had a whole, and of course we had the Department of Juvenile Services and, and others. So we, one part of this process was to take these kids and introduce every new kid every week and any kid that was having a particular problem and try to address those problems straight away. And the second, probably most important, was having case monitors or case managers to, ma to see them in the community. And we purposely hired people who were from the community. In fact, the best case monitor, if you want to call them that, was a 49-year-old woman who actually had two of her own children shot and killed. Um, so these are people from the community who were able to go out and find these kids and to see them where they lived, where they went to school, if they went to school, find them in the community, try and help them and mentor them as best as can be, and get them services that they actually wanted. So instead of stereotypical things like nighttime basketball, which you know a few of the hundred kids at a time wanted to do, we had poetry slams, we had other um, uh, tutoring stuff, all sorts of things to try and address the kids' needs where they were. So this project went on, um, it's actually still going to some extent. Um, 
But the first kid that came into the program was a kid named Corey, the guy I'm, I'm talking about. So um, normally I do this in a classroom setting, and I'm kind of Socratic, but I won't ask you for the answers. I'll just <laughs> say them out. Um, and actually, I have two of my classes students here, Lance, who's one of my younger students, and Zippy was one of my older students. She's my dad's age, but she sat in, she sat in religiously into the in the class last year. Um, anyway, so Corey came to us. Um, obviously, the first thing we wanted to do was get him into a safer situation. Um, but Grandma, and so he had a paternal grandparents who lived on the east side of town. Remember, Corey lived on the west side of town. His paternal grandparents lived on the east side of town, were kind of salt of the earth, working class folks who had never met maternal grandma, which is an issue in its, of itself, but were willing to take in maternal grandma into their house along with Corey if she got clean. Um, so the first thing we tried to do was get DSS, Department of Social Services, to transfer guardianship to his other grandparents. She refused, the grandma refused. Why? Because she had money that was attached to her guardianship. Um, but we were, so the, initially we had to meet them where they were, and where they were was to get them electricity and food and um, whatever kind of emergency needs they had. We had the substance abuse treatment system there, and so eventually we were able to get grandma into residential treatment. We moved the, the Corey to his grandparents' house on the east side of town. The school system placement person moved him to a different school. Um, so he was changing his people, places, and things, which for those of you like Chris and others out here know, um, changing people's pe people's people, places, and things, get them out of their environment where they are using or committing crimes or whatever makes a real difference. And so he was enrolled in another school. He was living in um, on the east side of town in a very nice area near Belair Edison, and was going to school. And by the three months having gone by, by mid-February or so, um, he was 95% of the time attending school. He wasn't wearing his pager anymore. Not that that means that much, but as you know, there's a demarcation line in Baltimore, a magic line, Charles Street, that the transportation system doesn't do a very good job of going across, to say the least. And unless Corey was boosting a car at age 14, which he could have been doing, but he wasn't, um, he was probably not back at McKean Avenue doing his um, drug trade. So he, it seemed to be a success. He was in school, living with his grandparents. Maternal grandma, by the way, went to residential treatment for 28 days, got clean, was then in outpatient treatment, and moved in with paternal grandparents, who again had never met her before. Um, and so it seems like a success story. So I, I carried the police pager at that time, which was a curious perk of the job, as um, Eddie Norris, who of course was in the show, as well as in jail, and, um, <laughs> and speaks in my class, and actually is my one real macho friend. Um, Don knows about this, Don and Will know about this. I'm not really a macho guy, but he's a real macho guy, and, um, and was the police commissioner at the time, so we had a lot of dealings together, um, legitimate ones. And he had given me the police pager, so uh, at, it was actually February 14th, and the pager went off, and there was, and it went off when there were homicides. And so there was a 14-year-old homicide victim in the west side of town, which at that time we had just started Operation Save Kids. There weren't a lot of kids on the west side of town. There weren't a lot of, four, there weren't any 14-year-olds. So I thought, well, it's obviously tragic, but not one of ours. And then our program director called me and told me it was Corey. Um, so Corey, as it turns out, had gone back to the west side to his little half-brother's seventh birthday, I think it was. Um, who was living with the mom's family, because it was from a different side of the family, and was shot by a 13-year-old. Correct me if I'm wrong on this, although it's in the book, so I think it's, hopefully it's real. Um, I didn't make it up. 
the 13 year old was known to the police. So we called an emergency meeting of Kidstat where all the people came around. They knew who the 13 year old was who had a, a beef from a previous five months ago from the uh, top of McKean Avenue boys time, brought him in. But for those of you who saw the wire, you know that re really lovely lawyer who represents the Stringer Bell team. So there was a lovely lawyer like that who I think got him out on $35,000 bail or something of that nature. And Corey's 16-year-old cousin and a running mate of his shot the 13-year-old. And then the 16-year-old and the, and the running mate were shot, one killed, one not. Sort of a big tit for tat sort of thing. Um, kind of a downer, obviously. Um, but it, it highlights a couple things. One, um, that even with immense effort and um, resources brought to bear on this family, on this kid, actually, and, and, his, um, and his family, things still can go wrong. And, and sort of related to that, the corollary to that is, so many of these young people live in, lived incredibly chaotic lives that are so far removed from many of our lives or virtually all of our lives that it really points out the fact that you cannot just say, why don't these kids pull themselves up by their bootstraps and get a, get a job or get like all of us who made it, who moved out to the suburbs or whatever um, in order what really has happened is for those who have pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and moved out to the suburbs, they had a lot of people helping them pull up their bootstraps. And these kids are left in incredibly chaotic situations. You may, you may think Corey reminds you of the Wallace story, for those of you, again, who have seen The Wire. Wallace is a, a young kid who's about Corey's age who has to take care of all these kids who don't have parents helping them out in any given day. Um, but this is a real-life story. And I, I think I'll, I'll close the story with... Um, with the most surreal thing that I've ever been at, the most surreal event was the funeral of Corey. Um, I, I guess you know you have to know a little bit about where I come from. I actually grew up in um, a Beverly Hills zip code, um, and uh, you know went to an Ivy League school and somewhat was elitist. I think when I was younger um, and mildly arrogant, um, but I've been. Uh, honed down over time. And, uh, and so I, I really spent a lot of time when I was health commissioner out in the, partly because I'm sort of ADD, but mostly because um, I wanted to see how people, how things were really happening in the city. So I would go out a lot to, to neighborhoods and visit people at row houses, find, find kids who'd been lead poisoned and, and visit the house and see what was going on. Pretend to be a drug addict to go see how needle, how, how um, addicts were treated at drug treatment centers, et cetera. So as part of this, and AIDS was a big deal during the, some of this time, so I've been to many, many funerals, black and white, Hispanic, um, gay, non-gay, straight, et cetera. Um, so I've been to a lot of funerals, and I was somewhat culturally sensitive. Um, but this, this was the most surreal thing I'd ever been to. So the funeral for Corey occurred three or four days after his death. So I don't know if you were you there. Um, a, a few of us were there. And um, so he was laid out in a, it was a row house. And, which is not uncommon, and he was laid out in a in a casket with open casket uh, with his gunshot wounds obviously cleaned up, and it was almost a festive atmosphere, not like the festive atmospheres that I've been at at other funerals where it's sort of a celebration of life, et cetera. This was like he was not paid attention to. Um, there were a, a ton of young people all wearing R.I.P. Corey shirts um, with the picture on it, which actually struck me after the fact. And these were things that were manufactured within a day or two. That there was actually a market for these things. 
there, there, there people were making, there's enough of these things happening, enough of these homicides happening from 14 to 25 year olds. By the way, as a parenthetic, parenthetical, whatever, um, the single largest, single biggest cause of death in 15 to 24 year olds in Baltimore City by far, 60% is homicide. You know, when I was growing up, it was leukemia or car accidents or or other types of things. It's it's homicide. So this is incredibly commonplace, and this this was just something that highlighted it to me, highlighted it for me. Um, so there was a, it was a, it was an odd, almost high schoolish festivity going on, and in the back were three guys um, from Corey's old running crowd, who had a um, trench coats on and were clearly packing, and then. Um, the, the, the pastor came about, and this is before the tit-for-tat happened. This was just when Corey was shot and killed. So the other two homicides had not happened yet. And the pastor was kind of talking about, please make sure that we don't follow up with further violence. We've got to you know, have each other's back, et cetera. And then the dad got up, who had been released on compassionate early release from South Carolina, where he was imprisoned, Corey's dad, and started off by saying, you know, if I'd ever met my son, this is what I would have told him. Um, so he had never met his son. Um, it highlighted all sorts of issues that, that so many of the kids in this city face, and frankly, inside the Beltway face in, in some of these most vulnerable neighborhoods, and leads me to the, the final point that I'll, I'll have here, and then we'll open it to questions, and that is I've come to the conclusion um, through the last 20 years of doing this kind of work that in order for a community to be successful, there have to be sort of a four-legged stool. It's not rocket science. I'm not science. I'm not the person who thought this up. Um, other people have, have talked about these sorts of things, but I think you can coalesce it into a four-legged stool, and that is, in order for a community to be successful and for kids to be raised in a in a decent manner, you need to have access to health care and healthy foods. You need to have a decent public education system that can turn out kids who have a, who have who are actually educated and ready for the workforce. You have to have little, uh, you have to have a safe and um, decent housing, so we don't have all the lead poisoning and the mold and the asthma and all the other issues that happen in the city. And most importantly, you have to have livable wage jobs for adults in that, preferably in that community, or at least accessible to that community. Not minimum wage jobs, but livable wage jobs. And Corey grew up with none of them. And way too many kids in this city grow up. And this city, in Richmond, in Newark, in New York, in Chicago in LA grow up without these sort of things and that's what we have to focus our attention on in order to grow up kids who have a real shot in the world. So I'll, we'll stop here and take questions. Let me preface it by saying before anybody says this that this is I clearly understand that the wire that Baltimore is not just the wire. I live in Baltimore City. My two younger kids go to public school in Baltimore City. I know there are parts of Baltimore that are not the wire so don't even raise the perception thing. I know that there's a perception of when you say you're from Baltimore, they all say you like the wire. Um, but what we wanted to do in this book was to highlight urban issues, not just public health issues, or at least public health writ large. So we talk about housing, we talk about education, we talk about drugs and crime and juvenile violence, and um, as well as things like teenage pregnancy and, and AIDS and things like that. So with that, we'll take some questions. Yes, we'd like for you to come over here, uh, or I can bring the mic over to you, but we'd, um, we'd like for you to speak into the microphone because we're taping this for podcasting from our website. So, can you stand? Okay. <clears throat> 
Um, the last thing you said about livable, uh, the four-legged stool part, um, you said livable wage jobs. Is that what you said? Um, can you elaborate on that? Yeah. Um, livable wage jobs are jobs that pay a wage that is enough to be able to afford housing. housing. To okay. Pay. Yeah. Um, and okay. Yeah. Thank you. Sure. Can you tell us any working four-legged stool projects going on anywhere in the country? Yeah, so here's the thing. The 10th chapter is called Place Manners. And the, um, so there are a lot of places that the four-legged stool is working. They tend to be higher socioeconomic locations. I know that's not quite your question. Um, but I'll get back to that in one second. So the, my office in Howard County, where Don and I work, is 12 miles from the previous office in the city health department. And those 12 miles are light years apart in terms of the social determinants of health and well-being. So we, we went from the fifth poorest jurisdiction in the United States, Baltimore City counts as a county, there are 3,520 counties in the United States, to the third wealthiest with 12 miles before. And I, Ken Ullman, our county executive, is not here. He's actually running for governor and will be a wonderful governor. Um, just a plug. But I got to tell you, it's a boring job. Um, compared to the city where there are just immense numbers of the Maureen's here from our health department in Howard County as well. Um, it's just a light year difference. And it's not because the teachers are better, necessarily, although my mother-in-law taught in Howard, Harford County. She's a very good teacher. But Howard County teachers are not particularly better than Baltimore State teachers. Andres Alonzo is a really dynamic CEO who I think is at least as good, if not better, than Howard County's. Um, the school system, however, is number one in the state, if not the country, in Howard County and not in the city, and it's a lot, a lot due to the socioeconomic status of the parents of the kids in the city to some extent, and, the, and the, how the school buildings are set up, and what kind of recreation is available, and all sorts of different things. So the social determinants of health make a real difference. Howard County has those four parts. Um, one place that has done a decent job at that is the Harlem Children's Zone with Jeffrey Canada in, in, Brook, in Harlem. Um, however, it is incredibly expensive and probably not replicable in other places. Other, Marla may know this, other than um, in, in where there's all the financiers in New York giving contributions. That's a little bit of an overstatement, but anybody. We can just, oh, I guess they need the microphone. First of all, I want to give, uh, I want to praise you for bringing light to the situation. And I just want to share with a couple of things with some full disclosure. I am an educator with Baltimore uh, City Public Schools. I teach at a public charter school in East Baltimore at the corner of Collington and Patterson Park, Collington Square School for the last seven, going into my seventh year, using theater and filmmaking for support um, academics. And then for the past year, I've had the pleasure of being a director of the Village House founded by actress Sonia Song from the TV series Rewired, Rewired. also based, Rewired for Change, right. also based in East Baltimore. With that stated, I really would like for you, maybe from my opinion and from my perspective for the last several years, working with young people and their families and incarcerated individuals, could you share the importance that I, I feel of not only focusing on the children, 
which is a danger when uh, the wire and other things kind of racially characterize African children in Baltimore City as being like abandoned and disheveled. But also the importance, which you said, the holistic approach right. of bringing up the parents in the community and the importance of on-demand drug treatment, which I feel will profoundly affect and improve the lot of African-American people within the city. Absolutely. Also, you should talk to the Shulmans. Their son does things just like what you're talking about with adolescents. Um, so uh, I, there was actually, that's a great question. It's a little bit of a softball because the single most important thing that I worked for when I was the health commissioner as well as Mayor Schmoke was to get treatment on demand in the city and actually treatment on request, we'd rather call it because the demand is kind of, sounds not as good. Um, I, I could go into the, the issue of the drug thing, well, that's probably an hour. Um, just suffice it to say that the war on drugs has destroyed a gigantic uh, chunk of our society. These, these statistics are a little bit old. They're a few years ago, but the National Center for Institute, Institute IA, um, uh, anyway, it looks like incarceration. 56% um, of African-American men, 18 to 34, were in the criminal justice system. and on probation, on parole, arrested, in prison, whatever, 90 plus percent are for nonviolent crimes related to drugs. And those same crimes are committed every day in suburban areas, in people's houses, as opposed to on the street. You all know about the cocaine, powder cocaine versus crack cocaine disparity, which has been improved somewhat since. Um, but to your point, I always ask my classes, and I'm, we just started the most recent wire class a couple weeks ago. Um, if you had to rank the kids' use of drugs, I'll, I'll get to the parents in a second also, but if the kids' use of drugs, private school kids in the region, Baltimore County school kids, public school kids, or Baltimore City public school kids, who uses the most? Um, it's by far the private school kids, second is the county kids, and third is the public school kids in the city. Um, now, the public school kids often get roped into the trade, as, as we know, but it's, they don't use more. And it's absolutely imperative that we uh, get parents treatment and have an alternative. So the livable, that's where the livable wage jobs, wherever the young woman was there, is crucial, which is why, uh, no offense to the downtown business people, but I think the Grand Prix is, no offense, is an <laughs> outrage. It's an automatic. <laughs> I, I love the Ravens, I love the Orioles, I love sports, I, but this is a three-day thing that is a known money loser that lost money last year, will lose money again this year, it's already lost people coming, and why isn't the mayor focusing her attention on putting job, livable wage jobs in the neighborhoods where they're needed, and that's what, well, so anyway, I, the parents need, you need treatment, but you also need alternatives, and that you've got to have livable wage jobs. Um, I, I currently live in that area. Which area? Uh, the area of McKean Avenue, Fulton oh. Avenue, in that area now. You know right. Bishop Miles. And but you mentioned that? Howard County and Columbia. Yeah. And that was a deliberate, plan community, where they immersed their, you know, low, middle, and high. What's happening in this city is a desert versus the oasis. And if truly you want to change 
the situation that's happening in Baltimore City, and especially in the inner inner, I'm looking for revolutionary wealth. And I'm looking for people who created that problem to move amongst the folks that, that live there now. You know, do the reverse of what happened out there in Howard County to come in and among people that have been so despaired by the system. You know, as you know, Baltimore, you know, was the first city in the country to legalize segregation. So there's a debt due to the people that have been detained in these communities by folks who no longer you know, believe that they have any responsibility to what has been happening and what has happened. I'll give you an answer. You said something about um, Beverly Hills. When I was growing up, I lived in Anne Arundel County. And during that time, Anne Arundel County, Severna Park, was in competition with Marine County, California, around who had the most, you know, prestigious community, right? To the point where they uh, went to the state and said, hey, look, up our, up our, um, uh, our, our taxes so that we can appear to be a little bit more lavish than Marine County. But what was interesting, they won. But they also won another distinction that same year. There was the highest drug use in the country was in Severna Park High School. So this, this, this problem is, is real, but it's more real amongst people who don't have a way, as you say, which is extreme against science. You cannot lift yourself up by your own bootstraps. You can't, that's impossible. You cannot do that. So my point here is, is that by, by, by that whole idea of lifting yourself up, it's resource people that have to be around folks who don't have resources to be able to lift them up. So I'm, I'm looking for some you know, lighter skinned people with resources to come into that community to help lift us up so that we can do what they did in Colombia. There's some dark skinned folk with some loot too. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not one of those people with a loot, but um, your four uh, legged stools. I think are missing one leg, and that is building family ties so that the people who, the kids have something that they can go home to that support them. If they do well in school and the family doesn't appreciate it or actually uh, demeans it, these kids will never advance. You need to build a strong family and through that, develop the neighborhood. Well, it actually relates to this gentleman's point. Um, you want the parents involved. The vast majority of time that I've been involved with these families, and I know Julie deals with them a lot, um, they, they truly care about their kids. Uh, the huge number of them who are substance abusers are like hijacked. So we have to get substance abuse treatment available, and we have to have livable wage jobs so they have something to go to. 
Good evening. My name is Linda Darrell. I'm a professor at Morgan State University, and my core, my class is here. I figured by the so Morgan State partner with your, with your class. Um, the question that I have is, what are the strengths of living in an urban environment, and what are the things that engender resilience within the urban community? Well, I mean, there's a huge history, both African-American history and other um, ethnic groups in Baltimore City, um, not, notwithstanding the fact that it was early there was early segregation here. But there's a lot of cultural history. There's a lot of intellectual history, obviously, Thurgood Marshall and, and others. Um, secondly, there is a huge desire for people to move back into the city. And so there's value in having property in the city. But who's moving back? What I, what I see in the city is a gentrification. So what I'm seeing is not, um, there are not large numbers of, of African Americans or people of color who are moving back into the city who can afford the housing uh, in the city. That's like the Canton and other parts. Yeah. So it gets, I, I don't mean to be a broken record, but it gets to livable wage, livable wage jobs. So let me give you an example. Um, I don't, hope she doesn't mind me mentioning this. Michelle Speaks, who some of you may know, um, is of the March funeral. Do the Pipers know her? Um, I hope you like her. Anyway, she's of the um, March Funeral Home family, right? And uh, you know where the Harford, the East Side courthouse is on Harford Road and North Avenue? Um, there used to be a, I don't know what kind of a corner grocery store, but it, she's turning into something called Apples and Oranges. And one of my classes at Hopkins was working with him on the, with them on this as well. Was, were you, it wasn't your group. Anyway, um, this is a supermarket to deal with the health, the, the um, food desert, which you all know about in, in Baltimore, which is related to the healthy foods, one of the four stool pieces, um, one of the four legs of the stool. It's developing a, a healthy produce place that can deal with the food desert thing and hire people from that community, paying livable wage jobs that are walkable from that community to enable them to stay in their homes, and also doing health education and, and, and food demonstrations on how to eat healthfully. It's not an exact answer to your question, but it's, it's bringing in jobs that pay, that allow people to live there and stay there and hopefully upgrade their houses that allow them to stay in these urban areas. Not a great answer, but the best I can do. Um, hi, Doc. Hey. How you doing? Uh, by way of introduction, my name is Camille Medina. I'm a clinical social worker, and I've been in the profession for quite a few years. So is my um, wife. Now, my insight into what's going on with the presentation can go back, let's say, I grew up in the 50s, and uh, one of the issues that was, you know, plaguing the African-American community in that halcyon date was internecine warfare and violence. Uh, there was that thing that we call benign neglect that was going on. And you, you addressed lead poisoning and all the other stuff that was, you know, pretty much extant in those homes and stuff yeah. of all of that nature. Uh, so the 50s were not pleasant. I joined the United States Marine Corps at the age of 16 to get away from what I perceived to be oppression and a few other things that were uncomfortable in Baltimore City. After I experienced Vietnam and came back home, uh, I decided to go to school, and for some strange reason, the God of my understanding drove me towards social work. Now, in, in this past 25, 30 years or so, I've worked with Dr. Phil Leaf and Dr. Bogrove at Johns Hopkins, the East Baltimore Mental Health Partnership, 
which was put together to address you know, families with children who present with serious emotional disturbances. Some of them have been shot to death. They were on my caseload. McKean Avenue crew, you know, whatever, Gay Street crew, whatever. Um, you know, and then I worked with uh, Dr. Cuthbert Simpkins. He wanted to head up the Violence Intervention Project at University of Maryland, the shock trauma. I was covering that area at that particular point in time. That fell through because uh, the University of Maryland and other people got their argument about, you know, who's going to get the money, who's going to control the funds. So that fell apart. I also worked with uh, Thomas P. Coyle, who wrote the RFP for uh, Healthy Start. Start. I, I actually worked over there, and that was to help the uh, African-American females who are also addicted, who were producing babies who were addicted to crack cocaine, half of which did not survive. And then the AIDS epidemic was becoming more and more a prominent thing. So these communities that we're talking about, to the people who live in those communities, feel that they are cut off from the rest of the world, that nobody really gives a doggone about them. And the young men that I've lost already due to that violence, none of them tend to have a sense of longevity. They expect to die. And that's the reality. The second piece is our social policy has always been at the heart of the matter. And until we can figure out a social policy that is truly constructive, and to look at the incarceration rates, because yep. we also got that going. My colleague here worked with me at a drug treatment program where you know me from. And we're still dealing with the same types of stuff. Until we address social policy more realistically, and we're talking about having jobs, but we're forgetting that we're no longer a labor-intensive society, and that a lot of people do not have the wherewithal to get the educations that we, you know, that we have been blessed to get. Let me try and address those two okay. points. Um, Too long-winded, but no, I got a lot with this. I understand. Um, first is social policy. Um, I, I don't know how many of you all follow this. I'm sure you do. The, you know, there are, there are about 70 kids charged as adults. Most of them are ended up being tried not as adults, but there are, I think, 48 that are in the adult jail. This has been in the paper recently. There's a, a DOJ, Department of Justice injunction or whatever to get them out. So the, the, what the governor is trying to do is have a jail and build an additional jail for these kids. Um, and there is actually probably enough room for 48 of these kids in the Juvenile Justice Center. And if you move some of these kids from the Juvenile Justice Center out into Community, event, community activities and other types of things that have been proven to work would decompress the jail, this, the ju juvenile justice center, enough to al allow them to be housed there. But that's just a, that's like the tip of the iceberg. The real problem is 99% of the kids in those, in the juvenile justice center are African American. And that's grossly disproportionate to the city. Obviously the city's majority black, but not to that extent. And it comes to your point that a huge preponderance of people are being incarcerated of one background, predominantly for drug-related nonviolent offenses that aren't prosecuted or arrested in other, other areas. And, and that affects the ability to get a livable wage job because if you have a record, because et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that is something we have to address. We have to have alternatives for these kids other than going into the juvenile justice center. Um, the second thing is, um, you were talking about the difference between the 50s and the nowadays, and um, 
the ability of the, the big problem, I think, in Baltimore in, in terms of a dividing line of an age gap, an age difference in terms of who's been successful and who's not been successful, is the loss of the blue collar jobs, the port. We haven't talked much about the port issue, but that second season on the port is a big deal. So here's a quick little teeny story. I was at Union Memorial Hospital when I was an intern. I saw, I, I noticed when I was 20, whatever I was at the time, a, a sociological difference. Anyone older, this was about 20 years ago, 50 and older, they all worked at Sparrows Point or GM plant. They didn't finish college. They didn't go to college. They made livable wage jobs, livable wage jobs, with benefits. They owned a row house, and their kids were going to college. Black or white, they were going. These were working class families at, at best. The 30 and unders, again, white or black. I mean, I think we also kind of, we, we you know, ra there's too many racial stereotypes about black people being the poor people in this city. There are a lot of, uh, without being pejorative of certain neighborhoods, a lot of poor white neighborhoods as well. Um, and the poor white and black um, folks were under 30, were not married, there were no jobs for them. They didn't have, they maybe had finished high school, but there maybe are service jobs that don't pay a livable wage. And they didn't have a row house and they didn't live with their kids. And there was that, that loss of those types of jobs is a huge problem in this city and many other cities. And we have to develop some kind of alternative to those type of jobs that don't necessarily need four years of college. Good question. I don't have that success. I mean, I don't know. Can, so, there's certainly Kai's in here, our tech guy. Say like, say like what? Yeah, so, like. Lowering the taxes would help because when you bring the taxes up, business is going out of Maryland itself. It's not going into uh, Virginia, Delaware, places like this. So we lose revenue and we lose people. Well, people that, that make up the tax base for Maryland. So again, uh, I guess like points here. F uh, three or four more questions because I don't want to keep you guys too long. A um, yes, couple things. First of all, thank you for putting on tonight. I think it's it's great you've taken the Thanks effort to, to keep the uh, the dialogue going. Um, I, I fit in that category of someone that didn't watch The Wire when it first came out. We didn't subscribe to, the, uh, to HBO. Um, we heard it from a number of people. Ultimately, the Atlantic Monthly article sort of compelled us to watch it. We moved from San Francisco uh, two years ago this month. We didn't know anyone in Baltimore. In fact, our going away party in San Francisco was themed The Wire. So, <laughs> so I was Bubbles. You know, we had like young kids, so I had to go Marshalls, get a little card, you know, that stuff. So, uh, but for a lot of people, that is their association with Baltimore. I think, fortunately, the way it was done, you see that analog apply to whatever city you live in. It may be worse here than some other places. Um, but there's two points um, I want to make. Um, before I do that, one thing, uh, the gentleman's point earlier about sort of our responsibility, there's a book when I read when I first moved here, uh, which I recommend everyone to read. Um, I think it's called Not in My Neighborhood, How Racial Bigotry Shaped a Great American City, and it gives yeah. you, it sort of chronicles. Antero Piedela. Uh, it helps you understand the context leading to where we are today. But uh, two points. One, we first came here uh, through our church. There's a, a life coaching program. It's basically mentoring to, uh, to you know, basically just uh, boys uh, here in the city, and I did that for a year, and I found it very difficult. And the reason I found it difficult, and it relates a little bit to your four-legged stool, is that you know, some of these in isolation, you're under-equipped to make a real impact in these kids' lives if they don't have several of the legs you talk about. So. 
Now, there, so there are, and it was a good program, but I just sort of wonder, there are these things that are happening, how can they be sort of better coordinated so that um, they can have a bigger impact? Second point is, you, know, you look at the impact that we've had from an environmental perspective where you know, green is good and how it's impacted buying behavior, you sort of wonder to the point you made around uh, drug use and people's role, I sort of think back to a subplot of traffic where it talked about you know, the, the drug use among sort of affluent groups and, ha and their role in this. And I wonder if there's a way to sort of alert people, in, you know, through media, through different ways of their, their implicit role in sort of where we are today. There's the argument the gentleman made earlier about the historical reason, and that may apply, although I think a lot of families sort of look at their situation and they don't necessarily want to put, have their family be an experiment. But if there's a way to say, hey, you are contributing to what's happening here. I wonder if there's a there's a so there's a peer pressure dimension that could have some impact. I think people are probably too self-absorbed out in those areas, um, and that actually would have been a good subplot that David Simon should have put into the. I mean, he did. There was a little bit a hint of it, but not enough. I happen to be involved with a company called Come Home Baltimore, which is active in the Oliver section, not far from. Uh, where uh, some of the things you described were the old Sears, and we are building market rate housing and attracting a lot of African-American families, mostly from outside Baltimore City. And we're doing it, it's, we're really trying to cause a non-gentrifying rebirth of a, of a blighted neighborhood without any displacement of the existing residents. And we've had some successes, and we've certainly learned a lot about what doesn't work, um, which I suppose you could say is a virtue as much as anything else. But, thought that occurred to me with your four-legged stool, could you make an argument? I should patent that, don't you think? Pardon me? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm kidding. Nothing. Uh, I was wondering if you could make an argument that job readiness should either be part of the fourth leg or a fifth leg of the stool. Yeah, I mean, I, that relates a little. I think you could make the longer leg of the level wage jobs. And one of the things that, just a quick bugaboo, and then one last question. Yes, uh, one last question. And Pat and I will stay around, I guess I can say for Pat if you have other questions. But um, uh, the thing that we, when we did drug, remember I talked about all the stat processes we did. We also did something called drug stat, this relates, where we held accountable drug treatment programs for outcomes, not just how many people they were seeing, but whether people were getting clean and staying clean, whether they were getting jobs if they were jobless to begin with, whether they were housed, if they were homeless, et cetera. And, Tons of people did job training and job readiness programs, but very few of them had jobs, to be able, had um, places to send these folks. And so in the, in the program, in addition to grilling people about why they're doing well or not doing well, we, those that were doing well, there were a couple of programs that had tremendous um, job gathering rates. And I asked them, you know, what are you doing differently? They, they all do job training, job, et cetera. They said, well, we have these companies, or, or, or a lot of them were in, this, in the hotel and, and restaurant business, that were willing to take a flyer on one of our clients if we said they were clean. And they took them, and they were good workers. And so they're now it's an open pipeline to these things. So we actually required all drug treatment centers to have pipelines that they had to use at some point or another. So it, yes, job readiness is important, and job training is, is important. But you've got to have those livable wage jobs available afterwards. So I would say it's a longitudinal part of the stool. Last question. Ha. She asked too many questions last year. I just have a bunch of odds and ends of thoughts. 
I do tours of Baltimore behind the scenes. I don't take anyone anywhere that's open to the public. And one place that's on the waterfront that will hire people without a college degree is Ruckert Terminals. The president, John Coulter, told me this is probably the last place on the waterfront where somebody with just a high school diploma can get a job, we'll train them as long as they show up every day, on time, drug-free, and act like they want to work. It's the old story of if you want to work here, I need you 100% of the time with 100% of your thoughts on my business. I guess a lot of people don't know about it. Ask a question? I took his class, so I learned everything in his class. <laughs> All right. Um, I've been told to plug the book. I think we don't have any left, but um, there are we someone. have a few left. But you can go to our website, tappingintothewire.com. Pat's family has done a great website. You can also go on Amazon or at Barnes and & Nobles. And I'll stay around to take questions uh, with Pat. Great. Well, thank you very, very much for coming. Thank you all.